Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-hosts Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Call us on air, get your opera voice heard. What's your opinion on what we're talking about? That's 847-866-9687. All right, tonight, Oliver walks us down the hallowed quarters of the OBS Hall of Fame. Find out which opera singer's picture he'll talk to the wall right there in Studio 2. Next to past inductees Leontine Price and Luciano Pavarotti. But first, in a Chalk Talk field report, conductor and past OBS guest... Catherine O'Shaughnessy joins executive producer George Cedarquist in a lightning round recap of their whirlwind week at the 2018 Opera America conference in St. Louis. They'll reveal just how many hours of opera conversation one really can actually absorb in a single day. And then at 9.45 p.m., it's the two-minute drill. Everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land, plus our team's hot takes on those stories. And now, without further ado, Oliver Camacho, how's it hanging? Oh, um, hi. Is that a good response? <laughs> I love Seems like a personal question. <laughs> yeah. How is it hanging? Our audience wants to know. Yeah. Uh, Matt Cummings, uh, how is it hanging with you? I, it still feels a little personal, I gotta <laughs> oh, say. I've always liked symmetrical. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Good to know. Good for all our listeners and other, to know. Other areas of life I don't care so much, but when it comes and, to hanging, uh, so. And of course, Toby, um, how is it hanging? I'm. Still hung over from yesterday. Oh, so hanging a little crooked then, a little, <laughs> a little off to the side. <laughs> Just a little over. <laughs> I'm sure, you know what, if people have been listening to this show for long enough, I've answered that question at least once before. Really? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> well, uh, that's great. So who's got sports? Because, uh, you know, uh, George always wants you to start off the conversation with sports, and I don't understand them, and I've never seen Aww. that. We're, so we're actually kind of in a beautiful time. We're in the dog days of summer where, like, mm-hmm. baseball games are happening every day during the day. Yeah. It's about to be super hot. There's no NBA. There's no football. Um, the World Cup is still going on. That's exciting. Oh, yeah. Uh, George made me a note here. Let me see. Uh, England made it to the next round of the World Cup. They did. They scored six goals. They beat Panama 6-1, and they look great. (laughs) I'm glad they all look really great. I mean, they are very muscular running around men. They have a lot of running to do. Yeah, I mean, lots of running. It's just going to happen. They got good calves, almost as good as mine. All right, without further ado, let's head into the Chalk Talk. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. The 2018 Opera America Conference is in the books. A good time was had had by all, 
And Kathy and George are going to tell you some more. Great. Thanks, boys, for the introduction. Again, George Cedarquist here with Catherine O'Shaughnessy, our guest from... When was it that you were on the show? Oh, goodness. Last. About a month ago. Okay. Maybe a month and a half ago. Uh, She and I are freshly returned to Chi-Town from St. Louis and the 2018 Opera America Conference. You were a first-timer. Yes, I was. Okay, so, I mean, first-timer impressions. What was it like? Well, I didn't really know what to expect, but I think the thing that struck me most was how equalizing the event is because there are many people I had thought of as unapproachable or maybe in our daily lives are quite unapproachable. Um, But there, there was just an interest in communication and in conversation and in discovering what opera could be. And that was a basis for conversation with many people. And I really enjoyed that aspect. I mean, so many people there from the field Mm -hmm. are at the conference. It's predominantly administrators yes. i would say but there are artists there you're a conductor i'm a stage director there's some singers quite a few composers i mean as an artist being at the conference and not an administrator what was that lens like to kind of experience the whole thing well one of the great things about working at fringe is that we do wear multiple hats so i was there both as artist and as administrator um i think one of my favorite um talks, in fact, was about the art of the ask and how to speak to donors. And that's something that as an artist, I normally don't have access to really well-structured presentations on how to do this sort of thing. And um, and yet it's something that I feel many good artists are asked to do um, throughout their careers. So I found it incredibly valuable. Um, I love talking to the composers I could find. I wish there were a way of finding them. <laughs> Like, I really wish there had been a session where all the composers and conductors and directors and librettists could get in in a space and just, like, there was an under 35 mixer, but I would have loved if there had been, like, a producer, you know, artist um, mixer as well. That would definitely be yeah. something that I would advocate for at a future conference is, like, there's not a lot of artists there, but the right. artists that are there, they're going to socialize, of course, but how can you get them in a more formal setting to talk about the work that they do, to talk about how to self-produce, which we've all mm-hmm. gone through or are going through. And yeah, it would be great to see a little bit more of that intersection of ideas purely from the artist's point of view and right. not just from administrators. Well, Kathy, why don't we talk through some of the sessions that really sure. stuck out to us. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist hanging out with my colleague, Catherine O'Shaughnessy, we're back from the Opera America Conference. Any of you folks who were at the conference that got a spanking brand new Opera Box mm-hmm. Score pin from me, thanks for tuning in to either the live show or to our podcast. So the first event was not the keynote. It was actually the New Works Forum. Yeah. Previously, I think there's been a performance component to that. Mm-hmm. The other time I went to the conference, which was in 2013, New works were performed, and then there was the the panel discussions. This time, just the panel. I mean, what was one of your takeaways from that New Works Forum? Well, there were a lot of (laughs) there were a lot of things, but again, what stuck out to me most was the sort of thing that I normally don't necessarily talk about, which is um, I went to a breakout session on how to market new works, and. One of the things that struck me most was whenever we're worried about maybe a piece 
not striking our audience um, as accessible for, for X, Y, Z reasons that instead of trying to play X, Y, and Z down, really play them up because the people who do come then know what to expect. And if people really don't like X, Y, and Z, they know that in advance. So they don't come and expecting something different and um, be surprised. So that kind of that idea of turning what you might worry as a weakness into the strength into the marketing aspect. That was new. I mean, that's probably not news to all of these listeners, but it was news to me, and I, I really enjoyed that. The Women's Opera Network was a session that followed directly on from the New Works Forum. Uh, allies were mm-hmm. welcome, of course, at that event. I was there. Um, Thank you. <laughs> you're, you're, hey, you're welcome. I got a fantastic button that says support women in opera. Uh, and part of that event was they brought on eight female composers that had recently been given mm-hmm. grants by Opera America, a number of whom I got to meet later on in the um, conference. One of them I didn't get to meet, and that was the woman who composed the music for Coco. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was very, we were around the, the greats. I was a little uh, celebrity yeah. sh- uh, shocked by that. What was What was something that you really loved about the Women's Opera Network sessions? Well, I just think it was so important that they have these initiatives and that everybody know about the initiatives that Opera America is doing um, to promote women. It's obviously, they're making some headway. It's obviously a slow process. Um, But I think that they're doing some really fantastic things. Uh, One thing, when it comes to the panel, they had a few panel members who were not musicians. And they were talking about... You know, building your own personal board of directors who you can turn to and, and for advice when you encounter um, difficult situations. And the the non-musician on the panel, I forget which, what her business was, but um, she kind of laughed and she's like, we've been talking about this for decades. And it was kind of interesting because, you know, you get in your own little bubble and the ideas that are new in your bubble are you know, are taking over the, your, your area, but other departments may have been using those tactics for years and it's really important we put our heads together and share that information and those ideas john adams was the keynote speaker and you were there at that one? i was there yes okay you're, you're, you're kathy's frowning at me across the mic <laughs> i i love john adams he um at his age and at his station, I mean, you can basically say whatever the hell you want and um, get away with it. I mean, he was he was ragging on everybody. He was ragging on he publishers. Was. He was ragging on composers. And I should be clear, I'm not frowning because of everything he was saying. I'm frowning because I reminded George that this session was on the first day and or the, and I had flown in from Bulgaria and was incredibly jet-lagged. So I said, I'm not sure how much I remember of this. Well, I, can ta- I can take this one. Yeah. Apart from, from ragging on lots of different people, John Adams talked... Well, he gave a shout-out to Kendrick Lamar, the hip-hop artist yeah. who had won a Grammy Award. Um he talked a lot about Wagner, actually. Not in defense of Wagner exactly, but more about why Wagner's work was important to him as a composer. It came from a very personal place, actually. And um I mean it really it really sort of set a very high standard for the conference as a whole, I think, when you find someone of of that kind of standing like John Adams. I, I introduced myself to him. Uh, afterwards, actually, and I was like, "Hey, I'm George." He's like, "Hey, I'm John." I was like, "Yeah, I know." 
And I said, it's, it's funny what you had said about oratorio, Mr. Adams. Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, it's very funny. Oratorio, he's written some, of course, um, El Nino, perhaps mm-hmm. the most well-known yeah. oratorio of his. And he said, yeah, it's funny. When, when people stage oratorios, it seems like no one really cares what you do. You can kind of get away with anything, which I thought was a great argument for staging oratorio right there you know no one ever talks about period costumes and setting for oratorios they don't they don't it's a bigger thing in europe i think to stage an oratorio as a complete theatrical experience and i I think that's something that could be done more of in this country was there another session for you that really stuck out well i mean certainly the diversity sessions really stuck out and one thing i found incredibly promising was how diverse the crowd was. I've been to diversity sessions where it's a bunch of white people asking, what can we do about this? I've also been to diversity sessions when I was practically the only white face in the room. And in this, I really felt like there was a good mix of people and there was still the predominant dialogue was of people of color and that normally sometimes when there are white people in the room with people of color, there's a real danger that the white dialogue will take over and defense of what we're trying to do and we're trying to make it better. But in this case, mostly people were quiet and listened and talked about their cities and their communities and what has worked and what hasn't. Um, so I really liked that. This is kind of in contrast to the, to the women's opera network, which there were very few men in the room. Um, and it made me wonder, maybe we've moved past the point of let's just have, Let's make sure that women are the only ones speaking about these or diverse people are the only ones speaking about these and recognize that ally representation is important, too, so so that white people can see ourselves represented in people fighting for diversity. Um, maybe there's there's room for that in the conversation as well. What were your takeaways from that, George? Well, I, first of all, was thrilled that the conversation ran so deep. Lifting many voices was the theme of the 2018 Opera America conference. That came directly out of the 2017 conference in Dallas, which was even more specifically marketed towards talking about diversity. But the conversation went very deep. So we were talking about diversity in artistic administration. We're talking about diversity in terms of audiences, in terms of casting, and in terms of creative teams. And it just seemed to be so at the forefront of, of everybody's mind. And as a artistic director, creator myself, I was absolutely inspired to really not just redouble my efforts, but really re- redouble the results that mm-hmm. I want to try and get in terms of the diversity of the administration, the casting, and the creative teams that I'm working with here in Chicago. Something that Mark Skorka, the president and CEO of Opera America, said at the panel towards the end of the conference, one of the panels on diversity, he said, our business model is based on our ability to exploit rich white people and give them visibility, which was brutally honest. Brutally, yeah. I, I don't have an answer to that well that's not a question it's a statement but i don't have a a solution to it um but i was i was shocked by that something else i was shocked by was a stat that mark skorka put out which he said that in 2017 two percent of america saw 
an opera performance. And I don't know if that includes HD broadcasts or not. I'm going to assume that that means that 2% of America went to an opera house and, and saw an opera performance live. So that's about 6 million people. Does that sound like a high number or a low number to you and why? It seemed high to me, actually. <laughs> Maybe that's so horribly depressing of me, a pessimistic. But um, I think I, I am used to thinking of it as being such um, a fringes sort of thing now. And hearing that even 2%, 2 out of every 100 people I see on the street have been to an opera this year, that's actually kind of exciting for me. It's obviously something I think opera can touch a lot more than that. And so it's our goal to close the gap between people who could be moved and affected by opera and those who've gone. Um, But I think reported with that was a report that that number is very stable. Um, There was a slight dip after the market crash some years ago, but there, it looks like recovery is in sight and it's definitely not diminishing. And I find that to be a very optimistic quote. I was I was depressed by that. No. <laughs> good. I, well, I, a little disagreement is good. Well, it's this. good. I mean, two percent obviously sounds like a, a low percentage. When you change it to six million people, that feels a little bit bigger to me. But then I thought, well, how many people saw a movie in twenty seventeen? Right. How many people listened to or purchased um, a hip hop album? Mm-hmm. Then again, how many people went to like the symphony? In 2017, and I think it's probably less than six million people. It's less. Than, yeah, it seems like I don't know. I mean, we'd have to get those numbers in a, it, there too as well. But. I, I hope I can. I hope I can find some inspiration in that number, at least to try and get more people into what it is that we do, and to try yeah. at least the number stable. As right, you say. because I think there's that myth that oh, opera is a dying art form, and there really isn't data to back that up especially not with the interest that so many people are are showing in finding out what opera can be, both in in terms of its form and what role it can play in people's lives. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist with our guest Kathy O'Shaughnessy. We're giving you everything you missed at the 2018 Opera America Conference in St. Louis. Opera Theater of St. Louis was Mm -hmm. the host for the conference. They last hosted in 2003. And on last week's show, we talked about some reasons why we thought OTSL was hosting this conference, not just because it's in the middle of the country and perhaps easier for more people to get to. There were over 700 attendees, the largest crowd ever at Mm -hmm. this conference, Uh, but also that OTSL has really put diversity, musical diversity, racial diversity, kind of at the forefront of their programming. There was a whole host of shows that they were doing while the conference was in town. I saw three of the four. The last one you and I both saw, which was An American Soldier, Mm -hmm. music by Huang Ro and libretto by David Henry Huang. This piece was devastating (laughs) go on (laughs) well i mean i'm sure you have things to say about it too i didn't want to interrupt but um yeah it was so it was so important to tell this sort of story right now and so timely it was i mean maybe you can give a little bit of the background about the story of danny chen very simply i mean it's based on a true story right yes danny chen who was a Asian-American soldier during the Afghan 
uh, war who was hazed and driven to suicide by the company mm-hmm. that he was in uh, in Afghanistan. Right. And this opera did not pull any punches in, sh- in depicting that, in depicting his physical abuse, in depicting um, the various abuses that go on. One of the reasons that this was, you brought this up in relation to diversity, and obviously it's there's a certain obvious diverseness to it because it's a Chinese story being told by a Chinese man and performed by Asian actors. And so there's that obvious element. But the composer at one of the sessions was talking about the universality of it as well. And I think it's very easy to overlook that when we see, oh, it's an Asian story um, because it portrayed people of many colors being abused. It portrayed people being raped in the in-service. It portrayed a lot of difficulties that were not unique to Danny Chen or Danny Chen's background. And um, I found that to be incredible. It, It is so timely. It'll be interesting to see how much this opera continues because the casting was so perfect to imagine different, you know, to imagine another set is hard. It's hard to imagine. And also yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of Russian historical opera as well. It's kind of one of my, you know, pet projects. And a lot of those works don't translate very well to other cultures. And they get they still get performed a lot in Russia, but often get overlooked by European and American houses. And for instance, like Boris Godunov resonates very differently if you know that the time of troubles is what exactly follows that story that's being told. Um, and so I think there's a lot of cultural resonance that Americans can bring to this. Americans of the 21st century bring watching this opera. And I wonder how much of that will um, still resonate to someone who doesn't have that background. Andrew Stenson in the title role, he's been our sh- on our show. Uh, Hong Ro, we're working to get him on the show too at some point. Yes, this this is a piece which was um, devastating, life-changing, beautifully composed, beautifully directed by uh, uh, Asian-American director Matthew Ozawa, um, along with James Robinson, who is the artistic director at OTSL. We're going to wrap this uh, segment up, at least. Tell me about the vibe really quickly of OTSL. What, what did you... Is it just one more summer festival, or did you did you enjoy this, the, the tents and the... The picnicking and the bars. What's what was like the experience like for you? I'm afraid I haven't been to too many summer festivals, so I don't have a lot to compare it with. But I really enjoyed the tents. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the fact that the stage extended into the audience. Um, at first, I thought I was getting a pretty poor ticket on the side because that's what I could afford. Um, <laughs> but that means that I got to see not only the stage quite well and the super titles, but I also got to watch the conductor, Michael Christie. Shout out, he was doing a fabulous job, um, and so that was a real treat for me and it felt even though it wasn't you know we talk a lot about site-specific immersive experiences it was a perfect example of an immersive experience that can happen in the theater um so i really like what they're trying to do the the experience the whole evening they're creating for their audiences kathy o'shaughnessy thanks so much for hanging out with us on the show it's been a pleasure uh we're going to send it back to oliver and the boys in the studio thanks again as well to any of you joining us for the first time who came from the opera america conference stick around 
Thanks so much, George and Kathy. And uh, again, uh, reiterating that hello to any and all new listeners who uh, met George at the Opera America conference. Uh, Keep spreading the good word about opera, and we hope you uh, stick with us. Uh, Coming up next, creative consultant Oliver Camacho puts on his tux and gets ready to induct a new member into the OBS Hall of Fame. That's next, only on Opera Box Score and WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. Listening to Opera Box Score on WNUR FM, Evanston, Chicago. Oliver Camacho, who the heck was that? <laughs> uh, before I get to that, I also want to say hello to all of the new listeners. Welcome uh, from the Opera America Conference. And if you got a button, one of the rare uh, collectible first edition, lim- yeah, limited edition Opera Box Score buttons, please wear it proudly. And if you're going to sell it on eBay, please give us a cut. Please do give us a cut. <laughs> yeah. No, but, we'll okay, sign it so for you. as the longest tenured member in the studio of Opera <laughs> Box Score, I'm excited to know that there are new listeners. Uh, spread the word. Join the discussion. We're glad you're here. Um, and, and, yeah, and call if you want to interrupt my segment. I'll kill you. 
<laughs> <laughs> Welcome, new listeners. Speaking of the segment, Murder. this is the Hall of Fame where we discuss uh, important so, figures and who the are we most talking about distinguished today? honor yeah. that we could <laughs> exactly. that could be bestowed to. Oh, it's almost uh, like yeah. giving a luncheon to <laughs> to a don't, don't, don't next. spoil the lead. <laughs> um, so, those of you who have followed me over from uh, Opera Now podcast, you know that Marilyn Horn is one of the most meaningful singers uh, in my life, maybe like one of the most formative, um, inspirational, heroic persons that I, I could ever listen to and talk about. And I'll say that it's because I have a very small brain. Um, I, um, if you divide music into like the three most basic components, uh, melody, rhythm, and harmony, based on how you order those uh, helps you decide, I think, what type of composer, what type of opera you're going to like. You know, if you're big into harmony, you're probably going to like Strauss and like Wagner. Hell yeah. If you're big into melody, you're probably going to like Mozart and, you know, and Rossini. And if rhythm is your thing, you're probably really into Handel. But also Rossini. Yeah, exactly. So r- melody and, 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 like and rhythm. Uh, I think he's... Like um, melody. Melody and harmony. harmony, yeah. You just listened to The Rite of Spring on a loop. That's the only thing you listen to. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, Vivaldi. Dun, dun, oh. Dun, dun, dun. oh, yeah, that's yeah. a good one, too. That's yeah. just 16. Yeah. So, um, you know, I started listening to opera when I was a young homosexual in high school. And um, I first was attracted. Wait, to, speaking of, yeah. Now that you're an older homosexual, happy birthday! <laughs> oh, happy birthday, Oliver! <laughs> Thank you. For those of you who don't know, Oliver just turned 106. <laughs> <laughs> and and according to George, that means he's seven foot eight now too. <laughs> so I started listening to opera like as a 15 year old, and like I just wanted to hear color tour. I just wanted to hear like rhythmic things and high notes, you know. But eventually, I started to refine my taste, and uh, Rossini became a composer that I felt like an attachment to. And it's because of the melodies, which are so catchy, but they're also short. Like Rossini did not write in very long format. Now, the thing is, like his operas, especially his his later operas, the aria and the set pieces happen to have like a long format, but ultimately they're you can divide them into into very recognizable chunks. It's like a Lego set. Yeah, this little brick is pretty small, but <laughs> yeah. together they make a castle. Yeah, but the bricks are awesome. You know, that's a great analogy. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> and if you're going to love Rossini, you are eventually going to find your way to Marilyn Horn. And I am inducting Marilyn Horn as the quintessential Rossini singer into the Opera Box Score Hall of Fame. Uh, we just thank you very much. Yes, applause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, good. She, very good. We hope she can find room for the honor on her trophy case. <laughs> we just heard uh, her um, singing one of her signature arias, uh, Cruda Sorte, from uh, Italian Girl in Algiers, uh, one of her comic roles. And I'll say that I also came into opera at a time when recordings were a really big deal. And if you liked recordings, you bought recordings. And, you know, I bought a lot of recordings and there are some in my collection that I just cherish so much. and I listen to them so much. And I think these days people with their access to streaming services and the YouTubes and stuff like that, it's hard to feel ownership over anything. These punk kids. Yeah. And it's also because of the, the nature of the international opera career now, it's also hard to... Uh, identify a singer with a certain composer or a certain role or a certain repertoire. I mean, who are the opera stars of today, you know, Anna Netrebko, you know, what would you say she's known for? What is her role? You know? 
Um, she she kind of does her, you know, Eugene she, Onyegin a lot. She's gone through a couple she, phases. She does whatever, she's yeah. mostly she does like whatever the Met wants right her to. Yeah. That's, but, that's her. Right, but that's the, that's the whole point. She's not associated with any one role. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, with Marilyn Horn and the singers of her generation, these are singers. We talked who, about it last week, too. Yeah. Pavarotti singing Rodolfo. Exactly. The these are singers who, when you think of a role, you think of this person. When you think of an aria, you think of this person. And because Marilyn Horn has been so critical to like the Rossini revival, there are a handful of arias that when you think of that aria, the first person you think of is Marilyn Horn. And the role of Isabella and her two arias are definitely part of that. Um, I'll say that when I first heard Cruda Sorte or, and arias that Marilyn Horn recorded, um, she does things that are so original, even to this day are original. They still feel spontaneous. Uh, like, in that introduction to Kudasorta, she goes off in this one cadenza that's nobody else does a cadenza there. It's just like heavy metal. It's like she just does she just does a riff, you know? Mm. And it's it's unnecessary and it's show off, but she does it so well and it's so exciting. I, I can't think of many other singers besides Marilyn Horn who had such a great uh, conception of what her she had such a great conception of what her strengths were. Mm-hmm. And she tailored every aria that she sang specifically to her strengths, whether she was, you know, doing variations the second time through a repeat, she would find something that was easier for her that yeah. sounded absolutely spectacular. Yeah. And that it, what she does is bel canto, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But let's just hear how this aria concludes, and it'll give us some more to talk about. right <laughs> too optively yeah. to finish I off the aria. That. So there's so much to pick apart in that, but I'll start by saying, you know, as she's going through the strata of the of the of the aria, she just abandons words and <laughs> just sings a color to a jag that nobody else does. I was going to say you know? I've never heard anybody yeah. else do anything yeah. close to that at the end of Crudo And Sorte. people still don't do that and maybe it's not stylistically correct, etc., you know. But if you listen to Rossini recordings previous to Marilyn Horn People were polite, and the music that Rossini wrote is hard enough. And singers like Teresa Braganza and uh, Giulietto Suminato, who are great Rossini singers, just respected the music and were happy to sing the notes that were on the page. <laughs> but Marilyn Horn exploited it, and she changed it, and she made it entirely original. And the coloriture was very fast when she was young. And uh, the chess voice she tapped into early. She started as a soprano, but she figured out early on that she could do this thing. And as a singer, those of us in the room here who sing, we know that like when we go for a high note, sometimes it's easier to like portamento down from it 
rather than to reattack the high note because like you're you get into this thing like where you're going up the scale where your uh uh instrument your position is like going up and you get to a spot at the top of the scale where you just get that high note you want to hang on to it but you don't want to get off of it and reset that is also a virtuoso thing to do. a lot of culture sopranos get off the high note and then reattack it and it's really exciting mm -hmm. but what we want to do as singers we want to collapse and Marilyn Horn exploits the natural like inclination to collapse, and she lets her uh, instrument like collapse down two octaves, you know, into the chest voice. Yeah. yeah, and that is actually really hard for most people to do, but it seems like she can just. It was like it's the, so exciting. It's such and a quick, it's it's such so a quick shift of yeah. gears too. It's shocking to the ears, and that's yeah. what always draws us into singers yeah. and and melodies is yeah. when they do things that we don't expect. And she is a singer, straight. She's someone who. It feels like she has total access to every single note in her range no. at any time. You know, she, she Marilyn Horn doesn't need to prepare for high notes; they're just there. She doesn't <laughs> yeah. need to prepare for low notes; they're just there. She yeah. can she can pull them out of nowhere. Okay, well let's let's talk about that because that is actually bel canto, and there are some singers who I mean I know I didn't really understand bel canto until I was much older, but you hear this thing when you're studying, you, you have to learn the bel canto technique, and you get these like 24 Italian artists to learn how to sing bel canto, and like. This is just a concept that you're taught as a student, but you don't really understand what the hell they're talking about. Yep. You know? And the idea of bel canto is that you can sing all the notes in your range, uh, you know, connected to the other. Like you have, you know, access to all the notes and you can do all the tricks on the entire, you know, register. And um, that you can sing legato, and then on top, which is enough, and most people are happy to just be able to do that. But then, if you can trill on those notes or sing them, articulate them in a different way, you know, uh, if you can do them faster, that is like icing on the cake. But most of us are just happy to be able to sing legato and for our tone quality to match, you know, and the speed of vibrato to match on every note. And Marilyn Horn obviously can do that, but she also can do all the tricks on top of that, which is why Rossini fits her perfectly. Uh, because it gives her a chance to show off and to add tricks, but to still sing so legato. And if I had more time, I would play for you um, the beginnings of arias, because most of the time, you know, Rossini has these beautiful but short, maybe two-bar melodies. And Marilyn Horn does better than anybody else in really singing legato two-bar melodies. They're gorgeous, and they get stuck in your head, and nobody sings them more connected than she does. But um, it's more fun to listen to the virtuosic stuff. Uh, so <laughs> we're going to switch out of comic opera into another one of her signature roles, which has a signature aria, which is Ditanti Palpiti. And uh, one of the tricks that she does as a bel canto expert is to sing quietly. Now, or to sing piano. And like singing piano is not singing off the breath. It's singing with full breath support, but just intense. And it's a really hard thing to do. And I just want you to pay attention to how she begins the back half of this aria, the repeat of the main melody, um, as quietly as she can sing it. But then you hear how she opens up the voice uh, and builds to the climax.
listening to Opera Box score. That's Marilyn Horn with some really impressive control. Take us through that a little bit, Oliver. Well, I mean, it was so legato. And then once it started to speed up, she started to do things in one breath. Uh, her articulation became more articulate. You know, she's not always known to add that slight glottal stroke uh, to the coloratura, but sometimes she does. And when she does, it's really exciting. Um, the high note in this is not very high, but it's just so edgy like you know like her voice doesn't always have edge to it but sometimes she just like locks in and you get like this super clear like whatever it was like high f you know which is not a super high note but in her voice it's so she, clear she's definitely in general horn mode there which yeah, the, exactly. the, the nickname that because yeah. she sang so many of those big old rossini general roles yeah and, and no one else really could do them so she didn't even have a lot of competition mm. and that that was one one way that people would refer to her back in, in that stage of her career was the, the general horn. So we're running out of time. I want to jump 10 years. That was a 1971 concert that we heard those three clips from uh, from uh, Milan uh, under her husband, her then-husband, Henry Lewis, conducting the Orchestra Sinfonica Rai. But we're going to go to now a very famous event that happened in 1981, which was a concert from Lincoln Center with Pavarotti, uh, Joan Sutherland, and Marilyn Horn. They each got to sing an aria, and Marilyn Horn sang another one of her signature arias from, at that point, an unknown Rossini opera called La, Don La Donna del Lago, which has enjoyed some revival of, uh, recently. But back then, really nobody knew about this opera. Uh, this is uh, another general uh, or like soldier you know, male part. Uh, this is Malcolm. And this is a gorgeous, long aria. We're going to hear, um, well, let's start with the first clip and then we'll talk about it. What a performance. <laughs> so that is a masterclass in bel canto. I mean, just the large intervals that she sings connected, and you hear how she mixes in chest voice and takes it away and then adds head voice. Uh, some of those big leaps that then she crescendos on the top note. And then immediately uh, goes right back down. Yeah, and the trills. Uh, but I feel like if you listen to Marilyn Horn sing, you will learn how to sing. And I... I'm not a great singer. I have some tricks. And I have to say, all my tricks I learned from listening to her. Like my color which is really great, actually. And my, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, okay. And, and my... Drink. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I mean, 
one of the tricks that you learn from her is how to um, get louder, how to increase the um, the volume um, without necessarily increasing the breath pressure, but instead you open up the vowel and you add more spread to it, and it invites the chest voice in. And this is what she's amazing at doing, you know. But if you listen to some of the, some of the lines she sings, where the vowel just opens up, and all of a sudden you hear, like, you know, the bass come in. And it all has to do with vowel, and it's amazing. And she does uh, also in that in that clip, uh, she does like a uh, a portamento on the e vowel. You know, um, that is so hard to do. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you can do that, that means you're connected to your breath. That means you know you're singing efficiently. You're using the air really well. And Rossini is not uh, a you know, music that a lot of people have been successful in for their whole careers. But if you sing healthily, you can sing Rossini and other bel canto composers for your whole career. And you'll notice that there are singers that are out there this, these days, I won't name names, who might have started a <laughs> career singing bel canto, but no longer go near it because it really is that type of hard. Well, uh, we're about out of time, yes. but is there anything you want to send us out on? Um, uh, we're going to listen to the finale of this aria from 1981. The, it's called Mura Felici, and it is just a showcase, and it ends on one of her signature cadenzas that uh, we heard earlier, like that drops like two octaves and stuff like that. Like it's just insane. It's amazing. And I have to I tell you, when I listen to this whole thing, I listen to it from start to beginning. And when I get to the end, I feel like I want to cry, not because it's sad, but because it's so triumphant. And I feel like the audience in that hall witnessed something that was amazing and they'll never forget what they heard. Okay, stick around. We have the two-minute drill coming out, uh, coming up, so uh, play us into it, Marilyn. From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. This just in, the two-minute drill. The Hungarian State Opera has canceled 15 performances of the hit musical Billy Elliot after poor ticket sales, blamed by the management on a homophobic campaign that claimed the show would, quote, transform boys into homosexuals. The New York Post has revealed that tenor Zachary Staines, who famously appeared naked in a 2006 production of Vivaldi's Ericol sul Tamonditi, pardon my uh, Italian, at the Spolito Festival, has been sentenced to 10 years probation for possessing child pornography. The Metropolitan Opera Guild announced that the honoree of the 84th Annual Guild Luncheon will be soprano Anna Netrebko. Said Richard J. Miller, Jr., president of the Guild, quote, Anna is an authentic 21st century superstar whose generous spirit, passion for life, and amazing talent have thrilled audiences everywhere. It turns out Monet Exchange, featured on the TV show RuPaul's Drag Race, is a classically trained opera singer. Quote, opera and drag are very similar. In drag, we just wear bigger lashes, she said. Exit stage right. Bass Bonaldo Giotti has died in Milan at the age of 85. He became a fixture at the Met where he sang more than 400 performances from 18, 1960 to 18, excuse me, 1989, mainly in Italian operas. He was a special favorite at the Arena di Verona where he appeared for more than 30 seasons. And on this day, June 25th, it's the birthday of composer Gustave Charpentier, who was born in 1860. And that's your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Before we respond to the two minutes... Um, I think there's a little bit of time just to finish the conversation because we were talking about it while you were reading the two-minute drills, so we have no <laughs> idea what you said. <laughs> That's good. That's probably no. a good thing. But, um, Toby, what were you saying about, like, were you were impressed particularly by... Um, so, as a singer, I know the difficulty of singing bel canto, and I have tremendous respect for people who can sing the way that Marilyn Horne did, where... Obviously, there's the whole negotiating passaggi, mm-hmm. if that's a word. Yeah. Um, and then what I said, though, particularly that I found impressive in the last recording was the forward momentum that she mm-hmm. kept on an open vowel um, while singing the coloratura. I mean, it's mm-hmm. astonishing. And that that's where the rhythm of Rossini yeah. really comes in, because I don't really, I bet that she was thinking more about rhythm and go and count and go yeah. and go and go and go and go more than yeah. a vowel at that point. Right. So there are... You know, a lot of Rossini mezzos have come since then, um, but the ones who do the repertoire best are um, contraltos, uh, singers like Eva Podlesh, and to some extent, Veselina Kasarova, who doesn't have a beautiful voice, but had a strong chest voice. I'd put a plug in for, for Shirley Verrett. Oh, yeah, Shirley, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm talking mm-hmm. since then, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but that's what, what's hard for people who don't sing to understand is that 
Rossini wrote this music uh, in a register where most singers don't have power. And so to sound authoritative, to sound like a general, you know, in some of that lower middle, you know, voice, she does it. And she does it by adding in chest voice. And it's, it's really so impressive. But yet she could still sing the climactic high notes, which weren't always in tune. Uh, but still, she went for them and they were thrilling. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say that, like, Marilyn Horn singing Rossini is my spirit animal. If I could be reincarnated mm. or turn them back the clock, that's what I would want to do. He'd be a coloratura run. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Zachary Staines likes uh, naked children, which is such a disappointment. Yeah. Actually, and if you read the quote there. Yeah, he's like, keep he's, me away from kids. Yeah, yeah, he said, I wouldn't trust myself with children either. And for those for those of us gay boys out there who listened to or who watched that video of him singing that Vivaldi opera, it was titillating, and it's a shame that like somebody who gave me pleasure is now into pleasure from <laughs> elsewhere. Yeah, let's let's leave it there. Yeah. Hey, wait yeah. though. Would you ever be naked on stage? Have oh, you? That's a good question. Um, Have you? I met? haven't had to. No, I've I've been shirtless on stage actually as a satyr in Callisto, mm-hmm. and I had a fake um, phallus made out of oh. a paper towel holder. You know, paper towel like a cardboard thing. You know, I've had to. Be shirtless and sing arias, and I just don't like it. You were almost, you were semi naked in uh, Lucrezia, and you had mm-hmm. a really, your body looked really good for that. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I don't know nice, what happened, yeah. but just so you all know, I would, <laughs> I would be naked in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Weston's actually naked. I'm naked right <laughs> now. I'm making everyone very uncomfortable. You're the opposite of never nude. You're like always, <laughs> always nude. Yeah. Um, the uh, I think the most interesting story for me is the sort of Billy Elliot cancellation uh, in Hungary. Yeah, a lot of bad stuff. Going yes, on in these that's days. yeah, that's sort of an extension of a lot of things happening, not just in Hungary but in Eastern Europe. Well, all and of all Europe, of Europe well, and and they have America. a pretty liberal liberal stances actually on, on their, homosexuality their laws are but victor orban is yes that's crazy. the uh, that's the issue the yeah. um they were attacked by a government sponsored newspaper um uh, not sponsored government run newspaper um which said that um the uh, that the musical uh promoted homosexuality and would therefore um <laughs> cause, cause the birth rate really to Elliot. go down yeah. which is something that uh that the far right hung- hungarians are very it worried about yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, it, well, for them, it leads to, you know, it, problems with, you know, immigrants coming in to fill in that gap. You know, they don't want that. They don't want homosexuality. It's I think I'm with the uh, director there saying that is definitely uh, the result of a homophobic campaign against the musical um, and the opera company as a whole, which has had problems with the government before. Um, and has been on both sides of that whole problem over it's there. It's kind of an interesting show for an opera company to pick because it's it's a musical I've actually seen and it's a musical I really liked, but there's not a lot of singing in it. Hmm. It's much more dance heavy as mm. a show because it's about a little boy who just wants to dance. He, he like goes into a dance class by mistake and finds out that he loves it and is really good at it. Well, the more you tell me about this, the more I think I want to be gay. But there's <laughs> <laughs> your See, liberal problem. The Hungarian, Sorry. No, I, no, I'm the just Hungarians trying to point out right. the ludicrousness of it. And no, it's just ridiculous. Um, I think my favorite thing on this two-minute drill was uh, Monet Exchange from RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. Being a classically trained singer. I, I don't know why I think it's awesome, other than I've recently... I've been introduced to RuPaul's Drag Race and seen what they do, uh, and these girls are incredible. Like it's, and I think it's great to have an advocate in pop culture besides opera box score. I mean, Absolutely. we're doing all we can. <laughs> yeah. and we're passing God, out pins. God left knows right. <laughs> our reach is extensive, but maybe RuPaul has a couple of demographics we haven't touched yet. You know, there might be people who listen to opera after reading that article with, from someone, hearing from someone that they know. 
about how great opera is. Like mm-hmm. Retta from Parks and Rec, who plays Donna. Yeah, is yeah. Also, anytime yeah. she's on a talk show, she's like, by the way, I love opera. It's we so should cool. get Retta on on this show. Who knows her agent? No, I, I will just say that besides RuPaul doing his work um, to contribute to the opera. Work. With, a Q. Uh, <laughs> with an E. <laughs> Thank you. Um, shout out to um, Stephen Raskowskis, who put together that article for WFMT.com. Uh, he is definitely an advocate for the vocal arts in Chicago, and he creates great content for WFMT. So, and it's a, it's a very entertainingly written article. I highly recommend it. I'm sure George will put it on his website for us if we ask nicely. Mm. But that's about all we have time for. It's oh, time to luncheon. wrap up. Uh, what about the lunch? <laughs> okay, we can mention the luncheon <laughs> okay. for Anna. It's $650 a plate. And... I thought it was $275. Oh, there's, right. a, there's a lot of yeah, depends on Yeah, it depends on how close you want oh, to be. It depends yeah. on whether or not you want the filet. <laughs> if you get to oh, eat off yeah. of actual plates or paper if plates. If you want to <laughs> like a gold circle table is only $12,000. Yeah. So I think maybe... Uh, oh, Anna. Oh, oh yes, Anna. is going to be buying a gold table. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Well, once we have a budget, donate now, please. All right, let's wrap up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Does anyone have any good calls, any bad calls? Um, Hit you, me. I'll, I'll just say that it is near the end of the fiscal year for uh, non-for-profit organizations. So if you have any spare change... Uh, find some local organization that you care about that puts on things that you like to watch and throw them like 20 bucks or throw them like 50 bucks. And yes, you'll get on the mailing list and you can say, please take me up the mailing list. But maybe you'll you'll be somebody who in the future will want that mail. And will, I like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If you donate to us, we promise to take you off the mailing list as soon as we possibly can. <laughs> that is my promise to you. We'll just flood your news <laughs> with videos of Marilyn Horn. All right, anyone else got a good call? A good call, bad call? I mean, it's, no? it's summer festival season out there. Oh, yeah. A lot of young singers out there working hard, doing shows. Speaking of some summer. Rehearsals sometimes at the same time. Literally. I got a good call. The weather for the past three days has been beautiful, gorgeous here in Chicago. And uh, hopefully it won't change its mind and become a downpour or a cesspit of heat. Uh, all right, we got to wrap up. That's it. That's it for with this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams, I'm Weston Williams, not George. <laughs> George, you're just a typo in your script. I'm not George Cedarquist, but I am asking you to continue the conversation about opera wherever you are, not just at a conference. We're back on Monday, July 2nd at 9 p.m. Central Time with more interviews, opera news, and hot takes when we honor America and its contributions to opera. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.